So for today's episode of the Talks on China podcast, we are delighted to be joined by Adrian Geigis and Stefan Ost. Adrian and Stefan are the co-authors of Xi Jinping, The Most Powerful Man in the World, a biography of China's leader that purports to get inside the head of one of the world's most consequential yet mysterious leaders. The book was translated into English last month, and I'd highly recommend it to anyone interested in the ascent to power of China's president, the Communist Party general secretary, and chairman of the military commission. As I'm sure listeners will know, she is likely to be elected for an unprecedented third term at the upcoming 20th Party Congress. So it feels like the perfect time to discuss Stefan and Adrian's book, um, and the claim that she is the most powerful man in the world. Stefan and Adrian, um, welcome on the podcast today. Can you maybe start by briefly telling us about your journey to writing this book and the, the inspiration behind it? Yeah, actually, uh, we have been writing a book about China almost 10 years ago. Um, and we started, uh, it was because I was, I was traveling quite a lot around he is the expert. I mean, Adrian is the expert. He lived in China for, I think, more than 10 years and speaks the language. Uh, but I, I, I had a lot of uh, trips. So about 10 years ago, um, I was in Singapore and I met a professor, a German professor, who told me how important Confucius is getting in China, the ideas of Confucius. And so we decided to make a book about Confucius. And that's when we started to to get into um, uh, the, the movement and everything that is, in, that is changing in China. And then our publisher asked us whether, right uh, about two years ago, whether we wanted to write a book about China again. And then we said, no, we can't write a book about China. But, you know, as a journalist, I'm, I'm used to tell stories along the lifetime of people. So uh, we had, or actually it was Adrian's idea, why don't we tell the story of China along the career, the life and the career of Xi Jinping? And we were very surprised that there was actually no, no biography about uh, Xi Jinping before in any kind of language. So we put a lot of, lot of things together, mainly uh, Adrian, who, as I, as I said, speaks the language and can read it. So we put a lot of things together and tried to reconstruct uh, the life uh, of Xi Jinping and at the same time tell the story of the changing uh, China during the last uh, years. Which was, of course, not an easy task because, I mean, as you know, and as uh, uh, you uh, the people who listen to this podcast know, I mean, China is not a very... Uh, transparent uh, uh, country, uh, so it's not so open the discussions inside the party and so on. But it was uh, interesting during our research that we found quite a lot of things about the life of uh, Xi Jinping and his family, which was partly to the fact that uh, before Xi Jinping was the leader of China, uh, there had been quite a lot of publications about him. Why? Because his wife, Peng Lian, is a very famous singer in China. And there was an interest of the Chinese media at that time, especially the local media, 
to know who is the husband of uh, the singer Peng Lien, uh, which was Xi Jinping. And so when we went through the archives, we found a lot of uh, interesting things about um, his life story. And as Stefan uh, said, we found it quite important to tell this, of course, not only the life story, but um, somehow also the story of, of China, because this is so important for us, the, the influence and the economic power of China is so strong now and the most uh, people uh, in uh, Europe, in the West, still underestimate that. They th still think China is some developing country and do not see how big the influence is uh, of China and with it how big the influence of this person Xi Jinping is. Mm. I think that's fascinating that you sort of um, went through Xi's wife to to dig up some archival information on on Xi and, and if how he, he would have known that he probably wouldn't have married her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's a or a maybe leak. he wanted to become important of, of <laughs> marrying such an important and well known wife. <laughs> I think even she, for all this power, is, would have been unable to predict the future at the, the time, perhaps. Um, but for this podcast, we should maybe focus a bit more or zero in a bit more on his, his sort of time as leader. I'd really recommend the podcast, the, the Prince by the Economist, Su Lin Wong, for those who are sort of interested in how she got there, although your book obviously covers this too. Uh, a pervading theme of your book is the idea of she capitalizing on on domestic turmoil in the the west um and i was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit more about the sort of key events figures and, and movements that have crystallized this idea of the the east rising and, and west de declining in the mind of xi and sort of senior chinese officials and and why do you think we in the west maybe have failed to come to terms with this shift in power to china as you claim in your book actually when when i look from from my position, you know, as a, as a journalist uh, uh, taking part of uh, all the different uh, things that happened in Europe and, and all over the world uh, during the last uh, 30, 40 years. The interesting thing is we always thought in Germany that communism does not function. It just doesn't function. We were always sure that capitalism and market uh, uh, economy only works in a democ democratic state. And so you just had to look over the wall, across the wall, to see that it did not function. And now suddenly you can see that, that a system which is still dominated by a communist party, which is a, a di dictatorship, yeah, it's a, a one-party dictatorship, that this economically works. And most of the people either still think it's a developing country, other people say, well, it's a it's a communist country which which cannot work and 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 the other people say no it's a, it's a it's a capitalist state and actually in fact every three things are right and correct um, and i think it's very interesting to see what makes a country like that really function and and it functions and when we compare it to the west you can see that in in, in a lot of lot of ways it functions better than our system i mean just just have a look on uh, the trains you know how they how they go and how the how the system works i mean in our book uh, we elaborate on the point that the rising of china is not a surprise about thousands of years uh, china had been uh, 
the leading country in the world economically, uh, culturally, a lot of inventions come from uh, China. So the surprising thing was more that in the uh, last 200 years, because of the colonization, uh, opium war and so on, China uh, fell down. And now, not starting with Xi Jinping, but starting with uh, Deng Xiaoping's uh, policy of reform and opening up in uh, 1978, China again became such an uh, important uh, um, country in the world economy. And Xi Jinping, so to say, is taking profit uh, from that what happened in the decades before him. So China became strong because, as Stefan said, it because they adopted capitalist methods, uh, kind of crazy thing, but a country led by a communist party, but adopting capitalist methods for their development. And uh, Xi Jinping decided to use this again uh, for the, his ideas of the communist party, uh, which under him, we have to say, also became very much a nationalist party, because um, he thinks, okay, economic progress alone is not enough. For him, the big shock was uh, the falling down of the Soviet Union and the falling down of uh, socialism in Eastern Europe. And he believed that if the people have uh, freedom, the Communist Party uh, will fall down and that this, in his uh, conviction, will be very dangerous for China. So he decided, uh, different from, Xi Jinping, from Deng Xiaoping, who put economy before ideology, Xi Jinping again decided to put ideology before economy, but of course using the economic power which uh, China uh, gained in the last decades for his purpose. And that makes it so important and one can even say somehow dangerous uh, for the rest of the world. And I wanted to dig in and push back a little bit more on, on Xi's sort of ideological underpinnings then, which I, I think is sometimes a bit underplayed. And we tend to erroneously, in my opinion, think of him as this pragmatic dictator. Um, but there's this lovely quote in the book, I think, where you say Mao relied on communist doctrine, um, where Xi wields a more resonant ideological weapon, nationalism. And, and you've just mentioned nationalism there, Adrian, sort of making the comparison with Deng Xiaoping. But could, could you maybe talk a little bit more about the complex relationship that Xi himself has with the legacy of, of Mao, um, which is another sort of central theme in the book. And again, I think you say Xi does not talk much about Mao, but he studiously imitates him. Could you maybe go into this a little bit for us? Well, actually, the, the interesting thing, at, at least for me, maybe Adrian can go into the details a little bit more. But what, what I think is very interesting that that she comes from a family that was in the middle of the party. Um, so what he was something like uh, they call the princelings uh, in China. And his father was compared uh, to Mao, let's say a little bit more liberal. And that's why he had uh, quite a lot of problems. He went into prison and everything uh, during the Cultural Revolution. And uh, you could imagine that, it, that a son seeing 
how they treated his father, how they treated his mother, that he would go to the other side and that we, he would join some kind of oppositional movement or just leave the country because he was, I mean, uh, smart enough probably to, to make a career um, in Silicon Valley or whatsoever. But he decided to get or to become more red than red and stayed in the country. And I think, and, and in, in, this, in this communist uh, world for him, and I think that he realized that, that the best way for him to make a career was in a, in, inside this communist movement. And uh, he was smart enough to understand uh, what he had to do to make a career there. And because he was a princeling, because he, he, he belonged you know, to the ruling class, if you put it so, the ruling class of the Communist Party, um, he was not only because he was a smart young man, but because he had connections to other people. So it's always a group of people helping each other to get to, get to the top. Very interesting contradiction to Mao. So on the one hand, Xi Jinping decided to take uh, Mao as his role model because he did not want to suffer the same fate as his father. And, uh, but there is also a deeper ideological reason why he never would criticize Mao because uh, he himself said it in a speech. If we would criticize Mao and even if we would criticize Stalin, the people would not believe anymore in the Communist Party. So he mm. thinks it was the biggest mistake of the Soviet Union to start to speak openly about the crimes of Stalin. So he wants to let the people believe that there is a continuity from Mao to him. But Xi Jinping, even in his ideology, which differs in fact from Mao's, goes even further. Mao Zedong was opposing the old China and all these campaigns in the Cultural Revolution and so on. He said, oh, you are the son of a landlord and uh, uh, against Confucius and so on and so on. So Mao was opposing the old China. And this is one of the biggest ideological differences between Mao and Xi Jinping, because Xi Jinping does quite the opposite. He very often quotes Confucius he even refers to the Chinese emperors as a positive example of high development. So he tries to uh, make a continuity from Confucius over the Chinese emperors over Mao Zedong until him, Xi Jinping himself, and uh, tries also to, to get his uh, legitimation from this. Yeah, I find that intersection fascinating, sort of the combining the idea of national rejuvenation, which has happened under Xi with Mao's sort of underpinning ideological communism, if you like. And a question that is often mulled over in policymaking circles in the UK and, and in Europe, I'm sure, is what does she actually want, do you think, materially speaking? Does does she simply want to rejuvenate China and bring prosperity to the, the Chinese people, as he, he often um, talks about? Or, or does he want to turn China into the world's dominant power? Or is it maybe a sort of combination of, of these things and one will necessarily lead to the other? How, how do you sort of see this? I think he, he sees himself in the, in the long 
thousand-year-old-long, couple of thousand-year-old-long uh, tradition of China as a as a huge, as a big, as the the biggest country uh, and the biggest society in the world. And to keep this together, I think he is sure that that the communist system, together with Confucianism, um, works quite well. And I'm afraid he is all right. He is, he is, he in his, the, the way he looks at this country in a certain way from his view, it's probably right because he, he sees that if, let's say, they would, they, he probably wouldn't discuss about that, if they would have different parties changing the power, uh, having different uh, uh, points of movements, um, they, would, they would be in, in a big danger. Uh, to lose the control about the whole uh, continent, about the whole about the whole country. So he sees the Chinese tradition, the tradition with Mao, the tradition of communism, and at the same time, the new developments of economy as as one big thing. And we always, as I said before, we always thought that uh, democracy uh, and and a functioning economy would work together. But even if we look in, back into our own history, uh, we, had, we had times when the economy was blooming at Kaiser's times. For instance, it was not a democracy at all. It was more de democratic as, as China is now. <clears throat> but on the other hand, uh, the, the communist system uh, in China, even now, if you compare it to the, to the, the system, uh, the power system in, in Russia today, has some kind of, uh, let's say, structure, structures that in a certain way work. So he cannot decide to become or to stay the head of the, the party and the state uh, for the next 20 years just by himself. He needs the party for this. Um, and, and, and so he needs a lot of influence and a lot of, lot of friends and, and people who work for him to keep up this power. And because of that, what Stefan just Uh, said it's a combination of the two things you mentioned in uh, your question. Of course, uh, it is his uh, aim, and we also write it in the book, to make the Chinese people more prosperous. He is not simply a dictator, uh, uh, like in some countries, who wants to take the money for himself and uh, put it on a Swiss bank account mm -hmm. or something. He really believes that what he is doing is the best. Uh, For, for the development uh, of the country and for improving the life of the Chinese people. But this said, because of the reasons uh, which uh, Stefan uh, explained right now, he believes this only works in the kind of socialist system which China has now with a one-party dictatorship. And that's why he quite a little bit different from his uh, predecessors, uh, puts ide ideology first. He wants the economic development, but in the question of doubt, he decides for the ideology. I mean, we see this very much now with the uh, COVID restrictions in China, which actually very much hurt the economy. But because this zero COVID Uh, became like a kind of a part of the ideology of Xi Jinping. Uh, it, it became so linked to the name of Xi Jinping because uh, he has this idea about zero COVID. So 
any party organization, any provincial head of the party, any city head of the party, any village head of the party, they know they have to follow this zero COVID, uh, even if it uh, hurts the economy. And the uh, same point, we have to be afraid, uh, he made it as part of his legacy, the so-called unification with Taiwan, which also would very much hurt uh, the Chinese economy and, and the world economy, we have to say, if uh, such a thing would happen, a military attack against Taiwan. But he also put himself into a complicated situation because with his desire to control everything, he destroyed the model one country, two systems in Hong Kong. The same model which originally was proposed by, by the People's Republic of China also for Taiwan to have a peaceful unification with uh, Taiwan and uh, they keep their political and economical system, but they are one country with China. But by Xi Jinping's desire to control everything what happens in Hong Kong and because of him being afraid that uh, when there are demonstrations in Hong Kong, uh, maybe one year later there will be demonstrations in Shanghai and Beijing. And uh, so with this security law oppressing these freedoms in Hong Kong and so to say destroyed the uh, one country, two systems, now it's one country, one system, after this, nobody in Taiwan will agree to a peaceful unification with the uh, with, uh, People's Republic uh, under uh, one country, two systems. So he has no choice anymore than do this by military means. And uh, one has to be afraid, I mean, nobody knows what will happen, but one has to be afraid that also here he will put ideology or nationalism in this case higher than economy. Yes, yeah, it does very much seem like sort of backing himself into a, a corner over Taiwan. And, and to your early point about the sort of implications of Xi's strongman rule for the rest of the world, I think we could all agree that the world is so in interconnected now that the rise of China and uh, even sort of idealistic ambitions of making Chinese people more prosperous is always likely to, to collide with sort of existing global structures. And I think about sort of China's tech ambitions and the national security implications that has for other countries, or it's sort of trying to shape multilateral organizations to better suit its its needs and how that impinges on the sort of free and open order as, as we know it. And I just wanted to, to finish off Adrian and Stefan um, talking about the present day and obviously just around the, the, the corner is the the 20th party congress which will kick off um next week and I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on what it might be likely to reveal about she's power and overall standing within the party and we've obviously had these sort of rumors of coups and disgruntlement and factionalism that have have been widely um dispelled but what are we likely to learn about uh she and where he currently stands from from the congress do you think well we 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 kind of look into the future uh, and we don't want to try it. But on the on the other hand, it looks like when the when the party decides, they will probably, as far as I can see it from from these days on, they will follow his path. But on the other hand, 
it, it's a huge, huge organization. And there are a lot of people who think about the future of China themselves. And, and most of them, or a lot of them, are businessmen. And they can see that that his restrictions and, and the way he is, he is building a new wall around China is not very good for their business. So it can easily be that they maybe they do not decide against him, but they, there could be rumors. Uh, and maybe if, if he's intelligent enough, he listens a little bit to that because on the other hand, you know, the, the, the big uh, success of, uh, of the, the Chinese economy was because opening up and opening the walls, opening the country to the rest of the world and, and they are businessmen, they can see that this can uh, be pretty bad for their economic uh, development. So maybe uh, he will change a little bit. Uh, as far as I can see, he is smart enough to understand uh, when, when his, his sanctions do not work as well as he thinks. So everything is a little bit open. Maybe even the Ukraine uh, war and, and, and all the, the economic problems for Russia and for the world that, that, that are follow this, following this war may be uh, for him an idea that he should not go into Taiwan, for instance, uh, because uh, parallel to a, to a military uh, confrontation, it will be a catastrophe for the economy of the world and then for China as well. I mean, as Stefan said, it's uh, hard to say what will happen, but uh, I would say there are three possibilities for the uh, outcome of uh, this uh, party congress, which is, uh, as we know, not simply a party congress like the Tories or the Labour Party. This is really an event happening only every five years and really deciding about the future direction of the country. As Stefan said, I mean, there are a lot of people in the Chinese elite, business people, but also people in the party uh, who uh, are not happy what happens uh, under Xi Jinping and uh, would be more than happy if he would be ousted. So that would be of these three possibilities, the number three, but of course, the we have to be honest, less, less likely one, because even people who think so will be very afraid to speak openly uh, against uh, Xi Jinping. Usually the only people who do this are some very old, retired party cadres who have nothing to lose. But uh, the most people who are still active in a province or somewhere in China, they are uh, afraid to do something like this because they know very simply with Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign, he always will find something or will invent something and can put them for 30 years into prison for corruption. So the number three option that he will um, be ousted is, we have to say, not impossible, but very unlikely. Number two option would be that because there is some unhappiness uh, among the leadership of the party with what happens that uh, they give uh, face, so to say, to Xi Jinping. He stays like of, uh, as he wants the next term in power, but maybe they put some people into the Politburo who have into the standing committee of the Politburo, which are the usually between five and 10 highest people in China, so that she uh, uh, remains, uh, uh, keeps his face, but that uh, there will be some other influence also in the leadership and he is somehow weakened. 
that's the possibility number two. But still, I think the most likely option is that with all his campaigns and with all people uh, being so afraid what can happen to uh, him, uh, to them, not to him, to them, uh, that um, he will keep or even increase his absolute power and the cult of personality uh, will, uh, will increase even and he will be possible to do uh, what, what he likes to do and also very dangerous situation uh, when there is such a cult of personality around one person that even people who have some positive uh, ideas what the country could do are afraid even to tell him because they are afraid it uh, could have some some bad consequences for them so that uh, uh, in, in, in such a situation like we have seen it in history with all uh, of such kind of dictators they can make very bad decisions and uh, nobody dares to tell them <laughs> that it's a bad decision yeah, we will follow the, the 20th Party Congress with an eager eye here at the, the China Research Group. And I'm sure we'll all end up sort of overanalyzing and jumping to, to drastic conclusions. But you've given us a lot of food for thought today. And if, if listeners want to know more, I would highly recommend they purchase your book, Xi Jinping, The Most Powerful Man in the World, which we will provide a link to in the show notes. So Adrian and Stefan, that just leaves me to say thank you very much for appearing on the Talks on China podcast today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thanks a lot.